This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. We like to model what the pros are doing because theoretically they should be the most advanced in the game about what works with training and what works in racing. They have the most investment of money behind them. They have the best teams, the best coaches and the best exercise scientists. So it makes sense to copy them, but not all the time. And today we want to get clarity on what sort of things the pros might be doing that you shouldn't be doing. That's the topic for this week's episode. First, Dad, welcome in. Let's start with our normal starting segment. What are you grateful for? Thanks, Jordan. This is another um, awesome topic because uh, as much as we want to emulate the pros, there's a whole lot of things that we shouldn't actually do. So I can't wait to talk about that. There's lots to discuss on that topic. Um, the gratitude thing, it's been interesting um, and and I, I don't want to keep going on the same theme all the time, but it's just so coincidental that the, my last gratitude last week um, talked about uh, Shauna and uh, my my niece, um, my brother's daughter, who has had cancer for three years and is really going well. And ironically, my brother has been in a similar position. And um, I'm so grateful to his GP um, who identified an illness that that no one else did. Um, it's a blood disease um, for those – it's amyloidosis, which is too much – basically too much protein in the blood. And it's a, it's a form of blood cancer, I suppose – and he's had this for the last two or three years. And it's only in the last four or five weeks that he's absolutely back to almost normal functionality as a human being, which which has just been such a, a journey for both Shauna and her dad, my brother, in the one family to have so, you know two people just really struggling with their health and ironically they're coming through it together and um, yeah, I'm so grateful for the for the GP for identifying what was wrong with him and being able to do something about it and and you know after having COVID for the last two and a half three years and no travel um, Shauna's brother lives in New York and Frank's been able to travel there for the first time um, because of his he's now well enough to travel whereas before regardless of COVID he couldn't he couldn't really move much. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm really grateful, A, for the GP who's who's got him on the way back to some sort of normality in his life. Um, so I don't like to be medically grateful all the time, but that it's just I just really want to get that out there. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a very um, astute GP who's done his job so well. It's the beauty of gratitude is you can be grateful for whatever you want. Um, my gratitude is for online delivery. Uh, online delivery is just so amazing these days and you can order something and it'll be on your doorstep the next day and it saves you the hassle of going to the shops or going to a shopping center, which is my worst nightmare. So, um, yeah, I'm really grateful that you can just click a couple of buttons and then this thing will turn up on your doorstep the next day. It's it's pretty awesome. Moving into what's caught your attention. Including including food, George. Yes. <laughs> just, yeah. It's, who would have thought that you could get food delivered to your <laughs> yeah, house? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, next segment, what has caught your attention? Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of on the medical side again, which um, there's just been so many people sick um, in this part of the world, uh, and I'm not talking really COVID. I'm, you know, COVID's absolutely still hanging around, and um, you know, the the wealth is still being um, affected by it. I, I saw Yates had to go home um, 
and uh, you know he's coming fifth in the tour, and um, I think the guy's coming ninth also had to go home. But but just you know here in Australia, there's there's been a really big spike in COVID, but but it seems to di- dis- start to dissipate a little bit now. But there's still it's still out there, and and not only that, there is so much during winter, so many other ailments going around the cold and head cold and and throat and all of this stuff has caught my attention why because because it's causing chaos with people's consistency and and their program and and we have some unbelievably motivated athletes in our group and i really feel bad for them because they they're so determined to to be on the journey of improving themselves yet are being hamstrung almost you know, by illness and, and, you know, a lot of that's, you know, not people's own fault. It's just in the community. And because we're on that fine line of stressing our immune system, we have the possibility of catching anything really easy. Um, and we're training hard. Our immunity is right on the limit. Um, sitting on the fence could tip over either way. And you only have to have one of your children come into the house from, from school or from play group and they've got a runny nose and all of a sudden you get sick and then you can't do the intensity session and you can't train properly and you, you're a week behind where your schedule is for your for your A race and all of a sudden now you're two weeks behind because you still haven't been able to get over this head cold. So I feel bad for, for the for the people that this is happening to, but and it's a fair majority of people that uh, that are in the community who are not not well during the winter period. And what makes it worse is and what's really caught my attention is having to deal with the motivated athlete when this happens to them and they're their worst enemy their own worst enemy because they just think that they're bulletproof and i can actually now train um i feel i feel 10 percent better than i did yesterday which could be two out of ten and so i should be able to train and that's actually not the case you shouldn't be training if you're two out of ten four out of ten five out of ten you absolutely need to give your body the days and and weeks possibly that it needs to, to recover, and that's a subjective um, thing. And you need to be honest with yourself about not because you're motivated to train, but realistically, am I well enough to train? Um, and and that that's really uh, been week in week out, day in day out. I'm I'm having to deal with the motivated athlete who's telling me, yeah, I'm good to go, and then I'll give them something that's six or seven percent out of 10 um, as an intensity yet they'll go too hard and then back, you know two days later they're they're back feeling average again and you've just got to take your medicine and 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 accept that you know you might miss a few days and don't ever forget you've got you know weeks and months and possibly years with many people of fitness in your bank and think about that you know there's so many examples of people including myself where and I fractured my pelvis five weeks of no training, just sitting, not allowed to walk, not allowed to do any activity, just had to sit to let the pelvis heal. And I'm thinking five weeks, how bad is my fitness going to be? And, you know, some of these coughs and colds are lasting four or five days and people are panicking that they're going to lose their fitness. And it's just not true. You, you will be fine. You know, give yourself four or five days and of easy training and you'll you know you've lost maybe a week but it won't take you long to get back to where you were you know i had five weeks off the bike within three months i was back to where my ftp numbers were pre-accident so 
you know, it, it is something that, that is real and it, that's why I'm talking about it because it's caught my attention so much that I, I really feel I need to get that message out there that it is okay to rest when when you need to. And and just because you're so determined to, to, to get the consistency thing happening, which is what we bang on about a lot, don't we? We, we really push that consistency. And, but there's times where you just can't be consistent. You need to be consistently resting and make that your mojo. You know, this is part of my program. I, I need to rest and, and let my body recover and then reset, start again and, and progress yourself gradually back to your uh, level of uh, intensity that is not going to cause you to go backwards again. Um, so a long winded caught my attention, but it's it's you know it it's a really good message, and if people can get get that uh, concept, that they will be more relaxed. And funnily enough, when you take the pressure off yourself um, and not create anxiety in your own mind about I've got to get back, I've got I'm missing days, I've got to stop stop missing these sessions. All of a sudden, when you go no, just relax, I'll be fine. The body will actually feel that and and start to regenerate itself with you not creating stress um, about and you know and anxiety about oh, I can't miss another day's training you know the the body's almost like you know it, it's not it's not silly it knows that there's you're under stress and it's your own your own mental thoughts that are causing it so stop stop that and and give yourself time mentally and physically to to, to let your body heal properly and and then reset. And what's my, what caught my attention is probably a follow-up from that. And um, I was one of the people that have had an interrupted period after a really good period of training. And it is you ex- experiencing that, it is really frustrating because you're in peak form and then you've, you're forced to go through a bit of a block where you're, you're not training. And uh, the thing that actually caught my attention from that was that um, just getting the key sessions in is enough to get back um, to a good level of fitness. And when I came back, I um, was going you know, through a few different things and it could only fit in um, some of the key sessions uh, for the week. And ideally, you know, you want to be ticking off every session, every recovery session, every zone two session, every key VO2 max session, every endurance session. And um, all those things are great, but there's a few key sessions throughout the week that are giving you most of the results. All the other stuff is just a bonus. And um, when I was just going through this training block, this previous training block, just getting the key sessions in, I mentally didn't feel like I was as fit as before, um, but the results proved differently. And um, we spoke on the podcast previously about running a PB and uh, that was a real shock to me given the level of training I'd done. I'd, I'd, prefer, I'd prefer a lot more to be doing way more of a volume of training. Um, and you've shown this a lot with a lot of our running athletes as well. A lot of them um, have come to us and just want to be doing three to four sessions a week. And so you give them just three to four key sessions a week they're all running half marathon PBs, which most people think don't isn't possible. They think you need to be doing six, seven sessions a week. A lot of the dogma in the running community is that you've got to be running 60 Ks plus a week, 80 Ks plus a week. It's all about volume, volume, volume. Um, and some of these runners that are doing half marathons are only running 30, 40 Ks a week. Maybe it goes up when they're closer to the half marathon um, and that endurance run gets up. But um, apart from that, it just shows me that, yeah, the key sessions are really what matters and you don't have to get in in your head about everything else and, and your body can still get back to that fitness level quite quickly. It's a great point you raise and you you, you question yourself, don't you? And you're lacking confidence because you haven't done the same preparation as prior. Mm-hmm. And and what a, a big confidence boost it is to you. You're thinking, oh, Geez, I've done it. I've done an all-time PB 
based on the least amount of volume that I've ever done. And and it's not it's not that fact. It's it's you've got this bank of fitness from four or five years of running, six years of running, ten years of running. And and having an interrupted eight week period, you know, the body doesn't care about that. It's still got that bank of fitness and you're you're still ticking off the key sessions. So so you you know, it's really good that you can now sit there and say, Oh great, you know, I actually understand now that the key sessions are the important ones and the other ones if I've got time, they're really going to help me keep maintaining my fitness bank. You know, if you didn't do um back to in, involving more volume at some point in your year or your block, then your fitness will slowly decrease and then it will be harder. So you're lucky you've still got that, you know, that fresh uh, fitness um, volume um, from a, you know, a really good two or three years of, of training under your belt. So, so yes, it's not just one thing and, and, it, and it, it is determined by a whole lot of things. So, so you've identified definitely that the key sessions have kept your fitness going so much that you've done an absolute PB, all-time PB. But if you kept that same regime, that wouldn't happen over the next six months, 12 months. Yeah. You would need to have a period where you have to get back to getting the endurance into you and the volume. And uh, it's a really good uh, a topic you've brought up with catching your attention. But but don't be don't, don't let the listener be fooled here. <laughs> that, oh, you only need to do you know the key sessions and you'll be fine. Well, that's true for a period of time. Yeah, it, depending on your training history as well. Moving on to today's main topic, things that the pros do that you probably shouldn't. And we want to start with by saying that you have to understand that well, the first thing you have to understand is that the pros are a different part of the population. You know, they are the top 1% or sometimes top 0.1% or sometimes top 0.01% of the population in their ability to do what they do. And you look at what the Tour de France riders can do, it is just, it's unthinkable the way they can perform. Um, they often have different genetics, um, different VO2 max uh, levels, different um, makeups that allow them um, to do what they do. And so when you understand that, you don't have to compare yourself to them because sometimes those genetic advantages or those natural advantages or, or even the mental advantages they have because they're um, people who are just solely focused on you know, going to the Olympics and winning that gold medal and nothing else in their life matters apart from that and they will, will sacrifice everything in their life to do that and a lot, a lot, of, a lot of us are willing to do that. Um, then they are they are just different populations. So you just keep that in mind when you are comparing. And it's okay to compare, but we want to start off by saying that and saying um, they are a lot of the time are just a different part of the population. So that's why we don't want to automatically straight away copy everything that they do. Yeah, that's a that's a good start to this topic. And uh, you know, not only are they in the you know the half a percent of the of the population in terms of physical ability, but you know they probably and I put myself in this category, um, during the period where I was so determined to, to achieve my goals, I became the, the most selfish person on the planet. Um, and, you know, that is that is part of what is necessary. And, and you know, a lot of the things that we're doing in our podcast is, is uh, totally directed at the everyday person who just wants to improve um, and and still have a functioning family or functioning social life or or really good at work and and this is just part of their everyday activities whereas you know the pros are single-minded selfishly directing all of their energies and 
they'll do whatever it takes to get the best out of themselves so that they can continue their existence as a professional sportsman. And they should be doing that. That's exactly what they should be doing. But, you know, a lot of them, if they look back at the end of their career, if they were um, so so single-minded that they – you know, had a had a partner who didn't like that and and left them. That that would be a disappointing thing to have happen. Be, you still need to have a balance, even if you are a professional. So I want to make that point that that you will probably um, have a better professional career if if you are a balanced person rather than a, an extreme person. And there are a lot of examples of you know a lot of the pros as triathletes, uh, marathon runners, cyclists at the pro tour, who have got fully functioning families and, and careers that, is, you know, it, it works better when they've got everything working well rather than, you know, being totally single focused on one thing. It's actually not healthy. Um, and it, 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 as we've said many times, if it's extreme, it's going to be unsustainable. So there's going to be a point where it's not going to work for you. So there's a few things that the pro lifestyle allows them to do that the everyday athlete or the age group athlete just isn't able to um, do and uh, do the same do the same way and one of those is the recovery time pro athletes have way more time to recover so it allows them to go harder in sessions or potentially do more harder sessions throughout the week potentially double up to a hard session in the morning hard session at night and the age group can't afford to do that because recovery is such an important part of the training program and if you've got limited time to recover you can't be filling that time with extra stresses on the body because you're just going to overtrain hit a wall get yourself injured get yourself sick etc and so that recovery thing is so important we just can't try and copy the same volume or intensities that they're doing because of that and joe friel uh is quite strict on this and he he basically says that no more than two high intensity sessions a week and we personally uh, push it up to three um, potentially some double days depending on the athlete um potentially you know two really high intensity sessions and one and endurance slash intensity session mixed in with each other but uh, i do like how joe frill is quite adamantly that you know the age group can handle two and the rest of the time needs to be recovery and he's, he's really strict on that and that's a really important factor to consider yeah not only um recovery it's resting you know um the pros can go out for a training session and then can come home and either have a nap or put their feet up um, and just really rest, uh, you know, go into a, a spa or a sauna or, or a swimming pool for relaxing, um, you know, non-weight bearing, um, you know, get massages, um, get the right fuel straight away. There's just no stress to, to actually get on with your day. Whereas, you know, We've just got everybody that that has got a full time job and family is probably getting up at five a.m. Some people six a.m. So I know some people get up at four thirty to do their session before they actually have their breakfast and then get on with their day. And they're not sitting around; they are, you know, either catching public transport into their job or or having to commute to work on their bike or whatever they're doing. It is not it is not stationary recovery and. And, you know, that is a, a number one thing that, that you have to consider the difference between what pros are able to do in their training session and then what they can do in their recovery. We're not actually talking about recovery as in training recovery, but they can do both. They can, they can rest, sleep, do all the one percenters and still do easy training sessions for recovery, whereas the everyday average person, they have to do the training session in the time limit they've got and then get on to a full eight-hour working day and then deal with if they've got a family whatever the children are 
are dealing with, which means, you know, picking up and dropping off and, and going to sport maybe with them and maybe being their coach. So there's there's so many things that are going to prevent you from from emulating the recovery process that pros do. So this is really important that, you know, we understand that, that we can't do the same recovery. So we've got to be way more conservative in our training so that we don't cause ourselves, you know, a heart attack from from training so hard, working so hard and, you know, not sleeping properly because you have to get up at the crack of dawn and, you know, by the time you finish some of your work at night, you know, you've only got four hours sleep left before you have to get up again. So, you know, burning the candle at both ends is something that the everyday athlete is doing daily, whereas the pros are absolutely not doing that. And and this is a, a big difference that you have to understand that, you know, um, how the tra- the pros train like this day in, day out, but but they're resting, you know, in between. And, and you know, it, it, it is, as you said at the start, amazing that the pros can do a 21-day tour, you know, day after day, you know, a training stress score of three or 400 every day. And at the end of 21 days, they've got some ridiculous training stress score that we would take four months to accumulate. Um, but, but they've got, they've got a, an adaptable body that's, that's used to this. They've trained for this. Um, got the same thing, triathletes doing Ironmans four weeks apart, you know, but the everyday age grouper shouldn't be copying that. They need longer periods between big events. You know, you can't just line up every weekend for a half Ironman. You need to spread it out so you've got an adequate recovery period. And I would suggest the pros should do the same a lot of the time <laughs> yeah. because, you know, it, it, just because these this is my job, that's their, you know, that was my my mantra. Well, I need to be in events. This is what I'm. This is what I'm training for. I don't want to avoid these, but. But the events aren't, you know, a 1,500 metre on the track. It, it's possibly, you know, the minimum time is going to be three hours 50 as a half Ironman and, and you know, seven or eight hours as, a, as an Ironman. And for an age grouper, it's, you know, anywhere between four and six hours as a half Ironman and eight to 15 hours. So you've got to have adequate recovery while we're talking about recovery in between events, in between training. Yeah, it's a really good uh, next point. It's that, you know, you can't copy the, the pros racing schedule. And it's been really interesting watching uh, a lot of the athletics athletes uh, who competed at the World Champs, uh, which was a few weeks before the Com Games. So, this only applies to some of the Commonwealth athletes. But Ollie Hoare, the Australian who won the Commonwealth Go- Games gold, competed at the World Champs, had a disappointing result, went to Commonwealth Games, had an unbelievable result, won gold, and then a few weeks later backed up and went to the Diamond League in a really uh, competitive race uh, in the 1500 at the Diamond League and ran one of his worst races He's ever run. He was he was eight seconds slower than his PB. So um, it just shows what's happening, and these athletes are trying to keep up with these crazy calendars, and even they can't do it. And a lot of the British athletes I uh, saw were posting online about it, and they actually had the European Championships in there as well, as well as Diamond League races. And I just couldn't believe there's been a Laura Muir from Great Britain um, third at the World Champs, gold at the Commonwealth Games. Um, gold European champs, I think, and then backed up for Diamond League and she ran a really good a PB 3000, although she was only in the top six, I think, but it was still a PB. I just, I'm amazed at her ability that she's backed it up for two months straight, basically, you know, we talk about holding form. But the point is, uh, it's hard to copy that racing schedule and it's, and you really shouldn't try, you know, it's it's just not viable for, and that's actually a really common question we get from athletes 
is I want to do these two races. Are they too close together? And so often, if they're within six to eight weeks, we're really, even if they're just two half Ironmans, we're really advising against that. Um, and we say, probably give yourself a little bit more time. And that's probably the minimum period. Anything less than that, it's, it's, it's probably a flat out no. Uh, some people like to do, you know, Geelong and Melbourne in the last few years has been a month apart. And you've really tried to advise people against that, even though a lot of athletes make their own decisions and decide to do it anyway. Um, but especially the, the more beginner athlete um, compared to the intermediate or advanced age grouper, um, definitely the more gap, the better. I mean, as you were talking, it reminded me of um, George Hincapie's quote where he, he says, um, he says, I'll always, uh, I'll take the escalator instead of the stairs if I can um, because I want to rest my legs and um, so much so that if I um, don't have to stand, I'll sit. And if I don't have to sit, then I'll lie down. And if I don't have to stay awake, then I'll fall asleep. And that's, that's his mantra of everything outside of training. And I know that we don't have to say this, but I do want to say that if there's, if there's any pros listening, we're not just saying that your life is <laughs> is training and then feed up. We know that there's other stuff going on and there are, there are a lot of pros that are parents uh, to young children. So, uh, we, But we are talking about the, the stark differences between age groups and pros here. Yep, and uh, I think that's a really good summary of, of the recovery aspect of it. And, uh, and you know, if you don't understand that you do need to not copy that, then I don't think you've been listening. <laughs> the next point is a little bit more specific, but it's uh, talking about um, how you actually perform when you're out, actually, out training. And, and one thing we thought of was um, taking unnecessary risks on the bike. Uh, you see a lot of the descenders going absolutely nuts in cycling races or even, uh, you know, on the TT bike. And uh, for the age group, uh, this is just a bit of a conservative lesson, but um, if you've got a job that you can't afford to lose, uh, maybe pushing it on the bike and risking crashing is not the best idea. And this is, you know, we can get caught up watching um, Tom Pidcock descend like a madman and do the greatest descent of all time in the Tour de France and you go out into the hills and you want to do the same thing. I know I, I like going around corners really fast. And um, sometimes you think, if I come off here, is it really worth it? And it's absolutely not. So uh, just another example of something small, but you don't have to copy the, the pros in those circumstances. Yeah, the peacock example is is spot on. Um, it was unbelievably good to watch, um, but you know he's really trained himself to be um, really skilled at that activity, and and that's another thing. What level are you? Are you are you used to riding descents in the hills, or have you hardly ridden any descents? And you know you've got to just keep yourself in your ability levels and 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 practice until you you can risk risk getting a bit more of an angle in corners a little bit faster that's something you know just because you see the pros do it it's not something they've done in you know one or two weeks of training they've been doing this for three four five years um and 15 years you know they're used they're used to riding um on these limits and it you know it's you know you often watch the uh, motorbike riders just doing incredible things with their motorbikes on corners and it's not you know the, the gp stuff you see with Mick Doohan in those days, you know, leaning over on the bike with gravity, you just can't believe it. You just, you know, if we as amateurs tried to do that, we would be flipping over the handlebars within the first corner. So you just have to respect um, that the skill level of these people is not something you can just copy. You need to practice it. And, And I think that's the important thing is just because you see someone do something, that doesn't mean you can without, you know, without the appropriate skill lesson 
to get to that level. That brings us to the next point, which is be sure to understand the reason why a pro might be doing what they do. Uh, don't just copy it for the sake of copying it uh, because you could be copying it for the wrong reasons. And you've told the story a couple of times on the podcast of De Costello in the marathon who had diarrhea and was wiping, wiping, trying to wipe the diarrhea off himself mid-marathon. And then everyone started wiping their legs in marathons because I thought it was some new technique, whereas he was just yeah wiping the diarrhea, which is just absurd. And this is how superstitions start, you know. People copy uh, the actions or something that the pros do. That happens a lot in tennis, um, thinking that it makes a difference and it's actually not. And if you understood that it was just a, a person's superstition, then you wouldn't be copying it for no reason. Yeah. Routine and superstition are two different things. And, you know, a lot of the pros are doing it because it's their routine and and it works. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, I often look at Rafa as a tennis player and his routine for his serving, it just it's just beyond laughable. It, you know, every single serve after a fault is going to go, go through the same routine. But it's what's made him uh, – it's, it's not what's made him. It's what's part of what's made him um, such a successful athlete because he's got a routine. And, you know, the footballer who is meant to kick goals and, you know, he's having – you know, a horrible time with it, and he starts to practice routine and and emulate thing the same the same action day after day, week after week. Eventually, he'll start be a, a sharp shooting goal goal kicker. The same with a person playing golf who's got the yips in putting. You know, you need to get out there and practice a routine that's going to make you calm and enable you to hit the ball, strike the ball properly, read the lines that you're you're trying to put the ball into the hole with, and and you will become a good putter. But but you know, you've, you've got to you've got to have these routines rather than superstitions. You know, I don't I don't wipe my brow because, as Rafa does, because it's it's a it's a superstition. I do it because it's part of my routine. Yeah, you can look at routines and definitely take the best parts of them. I've uh, definitely changed up my warm up run routine by looking at a lot of the pros and and seeing some of the warm up drills they do and seeing um, certain things they do and and think oh, I might try that and then you try it and you find it really feels good or you really like what it does in, in your warm up routine and that's a great thing to do. Um, tennis is a funny one. I, I, I just want to quickly digress a little bit and tell a, a throwback story. I was lucky enough to be a ball kid when I was. 13 years old at the Australian Open and um, right in the Djokovic era when he was just winning every single Australian Open in a row. I think he won seven out of eight or nine or something. It was just absurd. And earlier on when he was winning those early ones, his routine before serve was um, out of control. He would bounce the ball and it got up to something like 36 times. Or And I was, on, I was lucky enough to be on court in the final when he was doing it in the year that it had the most media attention. And I remember it was such a pressure point and the crowd were getting into him a little bit when he would bounce it so much and the umpire would have to shush the crowd and there's so much riding on that game and he's just standing there bouncing, bouncing, bouncing and I'm watching him thinking, why are you doing this? You're just making it worse because he's just drawing so much attention to it. Um, and he had this ability just to, it, for him, it put him in the zone and the more bounces he did, it was putting him in the zone because after 20 or so, I'm thinking, you're going to stuff this up because you've just put too much pressure on yourself. And then you would serve the most unbelievable serve you've seen. And and he obviously won the game. Um, and I thought for him, that really works. And for, for someone, for myself, if I bounced the ball that time, I'd get way over my head. And if I tried to copy that, it just wouldn't work. And that for me was a real big standout of um, someone you know, really sticking to their guns for what works for them, even if the whole crowd was against him. Um, but knowing not to copy that because it won't work for me. 
Yeah, great stories. And the De Costello one's a ripper, as we've talked many times. But, you know, you, you want to pick the best out of what you see and try it. And, you know, we've said this many times about nutrition, about anything. Um, try it on yourself. And if it's going to help you perform better, then continue to use it. But, you know, there's reasons for what people do as a professional because they've they've experimented on themselves and they've found out because they're at the top le- top of their game. That you know, whether it's golf, tennis, triathlon, marathon running, they they've they've got there because the things they've done have enabled them to be successful. So, so that's the premises of why we're as amateurs or everyday athletes want to copy them because we think that that's what got them there. It might only be part of a routine, but it it, it enables them to concentrate. Yeah. So, it, you know, as you've used that example with Djokovic, and I remember, the more important the point, the more bounces he did. <laughs> yeah. And and that was that was a key to his success. Um, of course, he spent seventy thousand hours serving. Yeah, exactly. Well, people forget that. Yeah. You know, it, it was the serving that actually um, won him the points, won him the matches, won him the tournaments. Um, but but the the bouncing of the ball was getting his mind right, and and he was probably you know blocked out everything from the crowd. He couldn't even probably hear the crowd, um, and he was just going, "What? This is how I'm going to surf. I'm going to throw the ball to the left, and I'm going to you know make sure this is a, a straight surf down the line." And he's in his mind using the ball bounce repeatedly to get him to think about how he's going to execute. Mm. And I have to say, if I could change my gratitude for the episode, I'm grateful that you enrolled me to be a ball kid when I was 12 years old because that is honestly still one of the top memories of my life. And it's weird to have one of the best memories of your life when you were 12, 13, but I just hold on to that and it's uh, so special. Um, another example is uh, lactate training. Uh you know, a lot of the pros are now doing lactate training and a lot of people want to get into it, but there's no point doing it unless you know how it actually works or the reasons behind it, the science behind it, and if you've done any lactate testing. And um, there was footage come out, again, from the Collins Cup recently and uh, a lot of the pro athletes were training together and Christian Blumenfeld and the Norwegian boys or watching Lionel Sanders train and they were giving him a bit of a hard time around the track because he was doing 2K intervals and they're all watching on the sidelines and they've got the lactate meter and they're going to take it in, in the rest period. He's, he's letting them do that because one of the Norwegians is his coach. Um, and they're all yelling at him going, you're running too hard. And because I think there's a lot of ego and testosterone going around, he's running too quick and they're all guessing what his lactate level is going to be and he's supposed to be under 2.6 millimoles and and someone's saying he's definitely going to be over three and someone's going he's going to be 3.5 and i think gustav eden said he's going to be 3.8 um and then bang he finishes the rep and they all huddle around and what's he going to be and he was 3.8 millimoles so he was training way too hard um but that is just another example of um again uh, understanding the reasons why they're, they're doing what they're doing finding the science behind it if you see a pro doing something new you've got to go ask okay what's happening here what's the science behind it is there any research or is it just an experiment at this stage yeah, great summary. Um, you know, you've just got to understand the reasoning behind it and and obviously only implement it if it works for you. I think uh, on the experimenting thing, we can watch someone do something on TV and think that's interesting. And as you always talk about, they might decide in their post-race analysis that that was absolutely useless and they felt horrible doing that thing. Um, but we don't get to see the post-race analysis. So, someone might go and copy that even though the person did it and realize that it was the worst thing for their race. So, without that lack of information, you just can't be making decisions and change your own routine based on that. Yeah, and that's why we're trying to say just, you know, don't copy everything that you see. Um, you know, you have to investigate it and 
and look, some of the most outrageous things you know that you see a pro do that that might be have nothing to do with contributing to their success. So, so you've just got to be a little bit clearer in, in what you're going to copy, and and copying is always dangerous. You 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 know every human being has got different requirements. So just because it works for you know rider A doesn't mean it's going to work for the next fifty riders. It, it's it's just totally determined by what works for you so so yeah we're, we're not saying don't copy anything that the pros do you should be trying to pick out the eyes of what's what's going to be helpful model the and what's not going to be helpful yeah yeah and ryan warren the exercise scientist who was on the show um, a while back spoke about this and he spoke about efficiency and uh, you could get one of the most efficient runners and everyone might try and copy their style. But he said, almost guaranteed, if you change your running style, your efficiency goes down and it might eventually catch back up if you stick to it for long enough. But um, that's another example of uh, your running style is the most efficient thing for you right now and you want to keep training that and maybe make minor tweaks. But if you suddenly saw that Elio Kipchoge has the best, uh, most efficient running style possible and then you just suddenly change your style and go for it, your economy is going to go down. And yes, yeah, so we're really just trying to make this point of, of figuring out what to model and what not to model. And I think one of the final points you wanted to make was um, you've got to figure out what kind of athlete you are, find out who you are and, and what you want and what you're aiming for. And that'll help you make decisions based on what you should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and just before we get onto that, was I was thinking that you know when you see an example of the last point we we're making, um, you know I remember seeing um, the uh, the best swimmers in the world swimming, and you know you see their stroke, you see the slow mo underwater, and then all of a sudden um, all swimmers seem to be swimming similar, and all of a sudden someone comes out with straight arm over the top. And, and they win an Olympic gold medal. And all of a sudden, people start swimming with straight arms. You know, whatever the, whatever the successful people end up doing, people will copy that. And that might be the most inefficient way of swimming. You know, some time trialists have got such a flat back and their head is so far down between their shoulders and their chin is touching the handlebars and they are aerodynamically unbelievably perfect. The majority of us can't get that position. Yeah, or you might get there, but, worse. Yeah, but your power's right down. You might be in the most aero position, but your power's right down. So what's the point? And you'll go slower. Yeah. So, so you know that that leads on to you know you've got to actually identify in your own mind and be brutally honest. Where what am I, and wh- what am I trying to achieve? Am I a dead set beginner in a sport that I've just taken up? Am I uh, a, uh, an experienced uh, average person who's just trying to improve or am I someone who wants to be a winner in an age group point the pointy end of of the events that I you know, the, the chosen sport that I've picked I I might be a very average at the start but my goal is to be a winner in my age group and, and, and all of those things are okay but you have to actually work out what you want and that will determine how you go about it so if you're more than happy just to, just to be social and and um, uh, use the events or the training to keep your health and fitness going, then you're going to think about doing some of the stuff that the pros do with a lot less interest. You're, you're going to actually not worry about any of that. You're just going to do what what's going to be more beneficial for you to get through each day, each session, each each week. Whereas if you're actually you know got aspirations of 
being a winner in, in your chosen sport, you really need to, to be thinking about it differently. You need to be thinking like a pro, even though you don't have the hours or the, probably the, the means or the, or the equipment, but you can do everything you can to give yourself the best opportunity by, by looking at what works for pros and trying it yourself. But, you know, that's the level you've chosen. So you need to actually think similarly to a pro, even though you haven't got the time to do it, but you can emulate the things that are going to make you uh, as good as you can possibly be. And, you know, once you establish what, what your, your level that you're aspiring to, that'll make the world of difference of how much you should take on board with, with what's, what's good for you and what's, what's something that you shouldn't even go near. I think that point can be really underestimated. Uh, Setting the right expectations for yourself can have such a positive impact on your experience in the sport and your experience with training and racing, your motivation levels, your enjoyment levels. I've definitely fallen into the trap of, you know, we we love these sports. We spend our it's our jobs to to get to watch these sports, to get to look at exercise science, to get to look how to improve. And I fall down some serious rabbit holes of things we should be doing and some of the conversations we have, we are just talking about wacky things, wacky potential things to add to training programs, to add to the athletes, to, tr- to test on ourselves. And then suddenly you can go down these rabbit holes of comparing, well, I'm not doing enough or um, I'm not doing enough compared to uh, this certain pro or this certain age grouper. But then you've got to take a step back and say, okay, what's actually my goal here? Because if I'm not a pro or I'm not, you know, I'm not at this level, so um, do I need to be thinking like that? And just adjusting your expectation suddenly just helps you enjoy the process a little bit more. And I think that's really, really important. Um, one one last thing I wanted to, one bonus point I wanted to talk about was uh, we, we've seen a lot of pros talk a bit about power and racing and we've spoken about the, the balance between using your power meter and then racing the race. And a few pros recently, especially in triathlon, have been coming out and saying they've just ignored the power meter completely um, because they're there to race and they're just willing to do whatever it takes to win that race. Um, Braden Curry spoke about it in, in terms of his run pace uh, at Ironman. He was in first place and then Christian overtook him in second place and he said he wouldn't do it any other way because he was, he was going for it. Lionel Sanders talked about it all the time. It's, it's his time to race. And this is an example where I think for age groupers, they should do that a lot less than what the pros are doing. And that's just a, a bonus one to finish on is that um, for the age grouper, um, sticking to your power for as long as possible will probably get you a better result more of the time than when it's time to race. There's very little time we speak about in half Ironman or Ironman where you disregard that and then it's time to race and time to push yourself, not, not based on the numbers, just based on your effort. Oh, there's so much in that one, George. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> um, when you've got the ability to race week in, week out, um, and you know, it's not it's not the race you've been training for for eight months or twelve months. It's okay to be almost flippant about. I'm just going to race it today, and really, they are experimenting as well, um, and they're trying to see what happens if they do ignore all of all of the things that they could be using. Um, and I know that I've seen lots of, you know, interviews with Lionel Sanders where he's just said, I had a crack today and it didn't work and, you know, I live to fight another day. And, you know, in his mind, he's not actually telling us the full story. You know, he's not going to do that again. He's, it's an endurance event and he's going and he's proved that. You know, we look at these last couple of events that he's been doing, um, especially uh, at Utah with, at the, the, the Ironman Championships. You know, he let the bunch go. He didn't race the race. He raced his numbers. They're examples of them changing their minds. And so, you know, just be careful what you hear and and watch their actions more than what their their words are saying. Um, and, and, you know, 
as as you just pointed out, you will have greater success the, the the more times you stay within your range and try to push yourself slightly outside your range when you've got control of your event you will have way more success using that tactic than just blazingly going for it and i just had an interview today with a guy who's who's joining us and you know he's done lots of endurance events as a cyclist and and his one thing that the reason he made contact was because he has had so many disappointing results. And he's heard our podcast, he wants to be on board. And the reason is because he's sick of having all of these disappointing results. He said, I've been fit enough, but I just sabotage myself come the event. And, you know, he's just wanting some advice and some help about what should I be planning and preparing and how should I execute. And he's heard us talk about it on the podcast and now he's excited because he feels like he's got some guidance and he won't be making that mistake again. And, you know, it's it's almost like a aha moment for him, you know, to know that there's going to be someone helping him on, on that journey. And that's the thing that the, the majority of the age group is, as we're comparing against pros, you, you can't be like a pro and risk everything because that's their livelihood. You know, if they don't perform, they are wondering, you know, whether they're going to retain their sponsorship, with, you know, if they don't to be seen to be having a crack, um, that, you know, people aren't going to actually um, back them anymore and, you know, their careers could be over if they're not successful. But in actual fact, if they thought about it differently and, and just raced within their means and trained better so that they're going to be stronger and, and fitter for the next event and learn from their mistakes rather than continually going in. And I see this all the time with the guys who are coming 12th, 18th, 24th in some of these pro races. They're unbelievably talented racers, but they're racing above themselves when they're not ready. You know, they're trying to ride in a pack with Christian Blumenfeld and Jan Frodeno and, and you can, you know, Lionel Sanders. You know, they're probably not at that level, yet they're going to ride with them because they want to be pushing themselves to give themselves every every opportunity to be successful, but it's actually probably detrimental to them. If they just did their own race pace and power and then ran at their own uh, pacing that's going to give them possibly a PB, they would probably get a better outcome. Um, and there are so many examples for the amateur to, to understand that. And, and, you know, just because I'm talking triathlon more here um, other than world tour cycling, uh, where it's in a race as a bike rider, you know, the race is the race. It's quite different. Time trialing is for triathlon almost and, and racing the bike is for world tour riding. So they're quite different sports and don't get confused with what we're saying here. If I'm in a cycling race and I want to be at the pointy end, if the race goes up the road, I need to be going up the road despite what my power meter is telling me. I need to just stay with the race. And if I can't do it and I, and I get dropped, it's not because I didn't try. But, you know, once you're separated from a bike race where there's a peloton of 12 people and you're being dropped by yourself, you're not going to come back from that because the advantage of having drafting with the 12 people ahead of you, you know, unless they all sit up and look at each other. Um, whereas in a triathlon, it's it's meant to be an individual time trial as a as a as a bike rider and as a runner. And as we know, you know there are groups that form in tri tri triathlon races. But but definitely, you you have to be able to f uh, focus on your own own ability, and that's the thing that's different here. And even the pros are going to understand that at some point in their in their uh, uh, career. 
that you just can't throw it all. You know, if someone's riding or swimming or running faster than you, you, you just can't go with them if you don't have that ability. Um, you can mentally push yourself to a point, but, you know, once you build the lactate above your level, once your heart rate goes through your mouth, you know, you, you're just physically going to slow down. So, and you could end up going from possible second or third, which is, you know, not as good as winning. I'm, I'm agreeing with that, but it's still better than finishing 30th. Um, so, you know, there are times when you should do that. It's a be all and end all and give it your, you know, and you not you don't care if you come 30th or it's first or nothing. And I'm okay with that. But we're talking about the difference between pros and, and, and everyday athletes here. And so, you know, there's not many times when I'd say that to anybody I, I coach. You know, this is a day where I just abandon all of the tactics and go with the race, you know. I do have – I do and have said that to a few athletes, but there's particular reasons why. But the majority of the time I'm trying to say to triathletes, stay with your numbers and try and improve on what you've done before. One interesting hypothetical I'd like to put you to you to finish off just quickly. Uh, you telling me that um, in 1988 – when you are when you've got 5k to go in the run at the Australian Ironman Championships, it's a little bit different back then because you don't have all the you didn't have all the data available, so you didn't really know whether you're pushing yourself fast in your threshold or not. But let's say you had the data and you could see second place coming, you would you would still stay in your range and let them come, or you would push yourself above and be willing to risk losing first place because you said that for you for, you know. Coming second or third isn't as good as first, but better than 30th. I'm asking you, when you're in that mindset where you wanted to win so bad, would you have rather blown up and come 30th than come second? Great question, Jord. And two years in a row, it happened to me at that event. So the first year, I was being chased down and I I went beyond what I was capable of doing and managed to hang on. And it was a great outcome. The second year... I was starting the race equal with the other competitor, which happened to be Tony Sattler at the time. We was we came out of transition together, and, in the and run his leg, pace was yeah. in the run leg for the marathon. Yeah. So we got off the bike together, and you know this is the year after I'd won. This is my second go at defending the title, and he just came out and ran a pace that was unsustainable for me. He was running way above my ability, and and I just thought. I'm going to stay with him for a little bit and to see if he is just bluffing or but straight away I'm running at his pace not mine and and after I don't remember whether it was 2 or 3k I just made a decision to let him go and he was you know I wasn't I wasn't letting him go he was just running away from me and I decided that that was going to co- cost me the event so I decided that I would stick with my pace and I still ran a PB um, because I backed off and I measured my effort, but he beat me by three or four minutes um, at the end of that end of that day, maybe five minutes. I, I can't actually remember, but but I ended up coming second. You know, so it was disappointing. But he was better than me on that day. And had I tried to run with him, I would have come probably fifth or sixth or seventh. I would have lost so much more because I would have blown up. Mm-hmm. It was it was a level that was above me, and and that would have been so much more disappointing question. for you. It, it would have been, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, limiting my losses was was something that I really prided myself on. Um, and, you know, the year before, I proved that I could push if I had to. Um, 
but you know, to push for forty two k as compared to pushing four or five k at the end was a different scenario. Yeah. So, so it's a really a really great question, and and I've done both. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. Thanks for finishing with that. And I think we'll end the episode there. So, thank you very much, as always, for listening to another episode of the Travelo Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.